Well, this morning we come back to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we're in the fifth chapter. One of the, the benefits and perhaps even the pleasure of reading and studying the book of 2 Corinthians is just how much Paul discloses himself, his own heart and mind, his own uh, sense of who he is and his ministry that he's been called to. And of course he presents um, much about his ministry and how he understands ministry because that's what's under attack in Corinth. Um, those who uh, are opposing him and uh, thinking him to be something less than a, a true apostle of Jesus have um, assailed him, assailed his character, assailed his uh, decisions, his judgments. Uh, they thought him to be fickle because he changed his plans in terms of travel. Uh, they look at his afflictions and his hardships and think that's a disqualifying feature because a true apostle wouldn't have to go through these, these things. And, and Paul, as we saw last week, he really does center upon the fact that uh, there are those who um, boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. That's really at, at the core of what this division is between Paul and these false apostles, is that these are ones who did glory in appearance. And uh, Paul says, uh, reality is not always what it seems to be. It's not always the things that appear to be. I was talking to Gordon Guchermont yesterday about uh, counseling, because you know, Gordon was involved in counseling for many years. And, uh, and one of the things we both know and we talked about and commiserated about is the fact that what people present to you is the, their, their sense of what reality is is what seems to, what appears, the, the, the presenting claims. Uh, this is uh, why my marriage is uh, going to pieces. Um, and they give you their opinion. That when you really uh, dig down a bit deeper, you find that the presenting problem is not the true problem at all. There's other things in the heart in particular. You know, we, we look at appearances and we think, well, that's what's going on between these people and that's why there are problems here. But you really see that there's the idols of the heart they're not even aware of, they're not even in, uh, in touch with. It really feeds into what the real problem is. And so you got to deal with root issues and not always fruit issues, not always the things that appear, but the things that are in, in, a little bit deeper. And Paul says there's a difference between the heart and uh, what is truth um, in reality, the things that are known unto God. Again, again the man judges by the outward appearance, uh, Samuel says, uh, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Um, yeah, that's really where we want to um, have our understanding of where the reality lies. And Paul says that, you know, you can judge the outward. You can judge why well, uh, this man seems to be uh, out of his mind. He seems to be off, 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 off the hinges. He seems to be ministering in such a way that we just can't account for what he's saying, the things he's saying, acting the way that he's acting. Um, Paul says it's for God we're doing whatever we do. You know, you don't have an ability to pump down to the depths of our heart and to know what's motivating us. Uh, but we're telling you, we're not doing things just to, uh, just as an expression of, um, of, uh, of madness. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. We have our motivations. We restrain ourselves. We restrain what otherwise would be natural impulses or the actual overflow of what we think God would, would require because it's, it's better for you. It's more conducive to ministry to you, uh, to rein in maybe some of those emotional things, some of those things that would lead people to think he's not in his right mind. And um, but, 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 um, 
But uh, when, when Paul comes to the end of that statement in verse 13, he says, For if we be beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. He's trying to uh, nail down something of what it is that's motivating those appearances, the things that are appear, appear to people, what's really under the surface, what's really going on. Um, and then uh, Paul comes out, uh, comes out of that statement of, of verse 13 and he comes into verse 14 with a, a more general statement about what motivates. What is it that motivates the heart and life of this apostle? Well, he's spoken about lots of motivations. He spoke about the, knowing the fear of the Lord in verse 11, we persuade others. He has spoken about behavior and conduct that might be tantamount to madness in the eyes of people. They say, well, this guy's off the hinge in his preaching. He's off the hinge in his uh, insistence upon whatever it is that he's saying. And uh, um, Paul says, well, we have our motives for doing that. Uh, When we restrain ourselves and we're more acceptable to you, we have our reasons for that. In the bottom of everything is the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the love of Christ that's the dominating, controlling, motivating factor of the way we conduct ourselves in this world. All that we do is out of um, an appreciation for, uh, uh, a gratitude regarding the love with which Christ loved us. It's his love to us, not our love to him. He's not saying uh, it's our love to Christ that controls us. It's his love to us that controls us. It's the reality of what he has done. Uh, His love as a sacrifice for our sins. His love that led him to uh, go to the cross and die for us. That led him to come into this world on a mission of mercy to lost humanity. uh, to, To seek and to save the lost. It's that love that is the controlling factor. But it's a controlling factor that, again, is um, something that's understandable when you put it on the uh, chart of uh, calculations, how you can calculate. You can't calculate the love of Christ. That's beyond measure. But um, we yet have our calculations. We have our um, conclusions. We have a reasoned understanding uh, about what this love of Christ has done for us and what this love of Christ uh, does in terms of motivation. He says, because we have concluded that this one has died for all. So the sense in which the love of Christ controls us is that saving love that has been manifested in his death, that he died for all. Of course, when you say that he died for all, the big question then comes up about limited atonement or universal atonement. Uh, just who is it for, who, for whom Christ died in terms of the old uh, Calvinist Arminian debate on the matter? I'm certain that was not in Paul's mind when he wrote the statement. But when he wrote the statement about the love of Christ, he is concluding not only that one died for all, but also that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there's not only the understanding of his death, but also his resurrection. Now, whatever it was that uh, his death did, it's, con- it's followed by his resurrection. And those that he did the one for, he does the other for as well. So the impact of his death and resurrection are unity. You can't separate them. You can't say, well, he died for all in some sense that's known to him and to God. 
And yet the resurrection is something that only is realized to those who come to believe when they uh, come to be uh, raised, uh, that they would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Um, Again, the whole matter of the use of universal language in the Bible is, um, and even even in our own language, we use universal language, not, o- not always to mean universal without exception. Um, we oftentimes use it to speak of all kinds of things, or um, not each and every one. Um, you know, sometimes in the context, it can refer to all of, all of the people of the church. We could be talking about all of us, you know. All, all, all who are Americans, all, all of a certain subset, or uh, it doesn't necessarily include all of humanity. And um, I don't think you can read into the word all in English or in any language and conclude every time it's used, it's um, used of all of humanity. Um, all were present at church this morning. Well, what would that mean? Well, if you said a statement like that, you're referring to all of the church members, right? You would say all humanity was present with the church. Um, we don't use universal language in all the time referring to everything without exception, all inclusive. We're speaking about oftentimes in context subsets or different sets of things and all that belong to that particular set of things are included. Well, I think in the death of Christ, I think it's in the context of a letter that's written to the churches, and Paul's looking to explain his motivation, uh, the universality of the death of Christ is referring to all who come to faith, all who through his ministry will come to believe. And Paul's, uh, uh, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're looking to bring people to the knowledge of the, the, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the death of Christ has universal aspects to it, even though it doesn't mean that Jesus, in terms of, um, let's, let's look at it this way. When we think of the death of Christ, okay, uh, the death of Christ, or what we call the atonement, and you look at what the death of Christ achieved, um, you have language in scripture that speaks of such things as uh, atonement, I mentioned that word atonement Uh, in this context here in Corinthians we look at the word reconciliation there's also uh, the language of sacrifice it was a sacrifice for our sins Sometimes a particular kind of sacrifice, like a burnt offering sacrifice. In Ephesians uh, 4, uh, 5 and verse 1, um, there's also um, redemption. There's also that word in a couple places in Paul and also in Hebrews, that word uh, propitiation. It's also a kind of uh, sacrifice or gift. It's something that appeases, turns away sin. And then when you ask yourself, well, who did Jesus do all of this for? Who did he atone for? Who did he reconcile for? Who did he, was he a sacrifice for? Who was he redemption for? Who was he propitiation for? When you say it's for unbelievers, you're saying, well, okay, that means their sins have been atoned for. All people, everywhere, whether they believe or don't believe, from you know, Hitler down to Gandhi, or Gandhi. <laughs> They've all had atonement 
made for them. They've all had reconciliation made for them. They've all had a, Jesus is a sacrifice for their sins. Uh, they all have been redeemed. They all have had their sins propitiated. And at the end of the day, you end up with universal salvation. Nobody, nobody ever falls short of the, the grace of, of God and all goes to heaven and all are in the new heavens and new earth and all the universe is reconciled to God uh, without exception. And it just seems that that Bible does not allow for that because there is such a thing as eternal punishment. Those who are um, judged for their sins and they're sent away from his presence in the new heavens and new earth. There are those on the outside, uh, the dogs that do not enter into the holy city. And they're excluded. There are those that are excluded. And so um, the death of Christ in the sense of the full accomplishment of the atonement or the full accomplishment of his work was was not for all everywhere without exclu- exception but it's all, all types of people not just Jews <laughs> you know that's what might have been the thought of many of the Jews in the time of the New Testament that uh, if uh, God was going to send a, a Messiah to make sacrifice for sin it would be for all Israelites and uh, the good news of the gospel is it's for the nations it's for all peoples it's for not just the, the wealthy, it's for the poor, and uh, it's not just for the, 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 the men in that culture that might think, well, God's made provision for men, but maybe not for women, women because they don't count. And, and Paul says, no, no, it's for all people, male and female, uh, bond and free, um, Jew and Gentile, all without distinction. All have access to the gospel as the gospels proclaim to all that we can never speak to about the message of the gospel, all have the hope that the gospel brings, if they will believe. But that's the, that's, that's the rub. It's if they believe. There, there's no a, appropriation of any of this to those that are outside of faith. It's faith that brings these blessings to uh, um, all peoples. Um, but the accomplishment of it is not necessarily for all without exception because God knows who would trust in Christ God knows his elect people from the ends of the earth from before the foundation of the world and so um, again I think when we think of the uh, whole question of the extent of the, the atonement we need to think that there's a special people for whom the, the, the atonement is effective um, but there's also a group of people for whom the atonement is uh, a provision upon faith, if they would believe, so that all are offered the blessings of the atonement, all are offered the blessings of God's grace. But in the terms of the way in which this uh, work was actually achieved and accomplished and who it was accomplished for, in terms of propitiating sins, redeeming from sins, reconciling from enmity, making uh, friends of enemies uh, that the gospel does, um, it's those who come to faith. It's those who believe to whom these things are properly spoken of. And so I think when you read this, the text that says he died for all, it's, it's perhaps best to think, well, all um, without distinction rather than all without exception. Um, all the nations, all the peoples, all, the, all those to whom the gospel comes, all those to whom the gospel comes and come to faith in Christ, uh, all these, um, the, this atonement uh, was provided for. Because there is a close relationship between um, those who have died, I'm sorry, those uh, 
for whom he died, uh, that one died for all. He says, therefore, all have died. All have died. He died for all, and all have died. Well, the language of all have died in the light of the death of Christ is language that scripture uses for those who have believed, those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. There's an incorporation of the people of God into the death of Christ. Jesus dies not only as a substitute in our place, so um, in one sense he's the substitute, he dies for us, he died for all. And then Paul says there's more than substitution in this death of Christ. There's the incorporation of the people into him. So he died for all, that's substitution. And then all died, that's incorporation. (laughs) So we are incorporated into him. We become part of him in his death. Does that make sense? So who's incorporated into Jesus? Well, those who are baptized into Jesus. And baptism is, depicts the reality of faith. That we believe in Jesus. We've come to Jesus. We are trusting Jesus. So we become part of Jesus. We become united to Jesus uh, through faith. And we're united in his death. And then he says, not only are we united in his death, that he died for all substitution, therefore all died in corporation, He goes on to say, and he died for all, to the end that those who live, and remember, those who are incorporated into his death, are also incorporated into not only his death, but also his resurrection. Again, know you not that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, what? Into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, that as Christ um, died for I don't remember the exact language, uh, so also we might rise in newness of life. There's the resurrection to newness of life. That's, uh, that's Romans chapter 6. Let's get that exact language. Romans 6. He says in the words of verse uh, 5, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us, again, all of us, <laughs> If he didn't throw in the uh, of us, he could have said, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? So maybe that's actually the language of the ESV. That might not even be the language of the Greek. That might have been added because the ESV authors are trying to uh, make it clear. He's talking about all all believers. So they say all of us. But I think that's, do you know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. That's incorporation, into his death. One died for all, all died. We died in him. We died with him. We're baptized into his death. We've been buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so as there is union with Jesus in his death, there's also union with Jesus in his resurrection. In fact, in Ephesians, it goes beyond that. It says that we've been raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That faith brings us into Jesus. It brings us into this relationship to Jesus where we are incorporated into him. So you view this here as Christ. (laughs) We've been brought into Christ. 
We've been incorporated into the sphere of Christ, into the death of Christ, into the resurrection of Christ, into the ascension of Christ, so that what happened to him historically happens to us. I don't, hope, don't even want to say metaphorically because there is this living union, but there is this corresponding reality that happens to us when we believe that we die. We die to the world. We die to sin. We die to the things we once lived for. We said we no longer live for these things. We live for something new, something different, something that is um, uh, not for the things that put Jesus to death on the cross, but for the things that um, speak of a new, a new creation, to speak of new, newness of life, which is Paul is going on to say in Second Corinthians. Behold, if any man is in Christ, what? A new creation. A new creation. Uh, so we're part of a new creation. We're part of a new people. And so we've been raised with Christ. And the whole end of the, the, the death of Christ is that we who believe should no longer live for ourselves. That's the life we once lived. That's the life that um, many people in Corinth were living for themselves. They weren't considering Jesus. Paul says the love of Christ controls us because he's the one who died for us. And we've died with him. And he was raised for us, and we've raised, been raised with him. So that those who have life, or those who live, and again, not talking about physical life, talking about spiritual life, talking about the life of the age to come that comes to us now through the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, that resurrection has come. The life of the age to come has come into the present age through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we live, we live unto God. And so we might no longer live for ourselves, themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And I don't know if you've been watching this, but throughout this letter, so far, this theme of death and resurrection has appeared again and again and again. Remember back in chapter 1? Uh, Paul says in verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, whether that was actually something that was passed by some judicial body on Paul, we don't know. Just the fact that we're, we're like dead men here. We're, we're, we're the off-scouring of all things. Everybody's after us. Everybody wants uh, 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 to triumph over us, even through violent means of persecution and um, killing us. But Paul says, uh, that's okay, because uh, that was to make us rely, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Death and resurrection. Uh, we're facing the possibility of death. Well, we've already died to the things of this world, the honors of this world. We don't live for those things. We live for Christ who is raised from the dead. And so uh, that's whom we rely on. We don't look for this to this world to you know, put the badge of honor on us, to give us the presidential medal, and say, well done, Paul. <laughs> No, we're looking for God to give us those honors. And so we trust in him who um, raises the dead. And then, in, um, well, there's a number of these, but the, the one that sticks out in my mind is in chapter 4, where he says, um, uh, after speaking about uh, all the hardships he went through, in verse 8 and 9, he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Um, 
So were people of the cross and open tomb, were people incorporated into the death and resurrection of Christ. And Paul says this, this is the motivating thing. It's the one who loved us, who, who died for us, has demonstrated the, the, the intensity, the wonder, the glory, the, the splendor of his love. And that is what controls us. And so, so from now on, he says in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. It always amazes me how statements in the Bible can be taken and uh, run with in such ways as it opens up new vistas of theology that no one ever heard of before. I don't know if you ever heard of a man by the name of um, Bultmann, Rudolf Bultmann, a German theologian who in many regards was just an incredible, uh, brilliant man who really did understand biblical languages, understood much about uh, uh, the teaching of the Bible, but there was areas where he really jumped to all the wrong conclusions. And here's one of those wrong conclusions that Bultmann uh, came upon. I think it was Bultmann I'm, I'm refer- who, who did this, that he, he basically said, well, Paul says, uh, uh, we regard him no longer according to the flesh. So the G- the Paul was not concerned about the earthly life of Jesus. And he was only concerned about the heavenly Christ. And so there the, the became, not just with Bultmann, others as well, this big chasm of difference between what they call the Christ of history and the Christ of the message or the kerygma, the gospel message, the Greek word for preaching is kerygma. So there's the Christ we preach, that's the kerygma, and he's one thing, he's the heavenly Christ, he's the Christ of faith, and then there's the earthly Christ that Paul has no interest in. <laughs> he has no interest in the Jesus whose feet actually touch the, the ground of, um, of Judea and Galilee, walked the streets, and um, performed the miracles, and uh, spoke the words that the Gospels mention. Yes? Well, that, that, I don't think that's right, because uh, the Jesus that was not only the one that suffered on the cross, he suffered throughout his life, and that's we enter into his sufferings in that way, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's not a right view, yeah. and I'm explaining... <laughs> I'm, explaining. Well, yeah, really, yeah, was, I'm sorry? I, was kind of defend, I wasn't defending the man. I was no. Defending. No, I understood you weren't. Yeah. No, it's not a right view. Of course it's not. And um, the, um, the reason is, is that Paul does not have a complete indifference to the earthly life of Jesus. I mean, he, uh, he mentions the institution of the Lord's Supper, that what I received from the Lord I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, um, you have uh, in the Corinthian letter Paul referring to uh, Jesus' words uh, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Um, you even have Paul referring to things that Jesus said that even we don't read about in the Gospels. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, that uh, as our Lord Jesus said, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. There are many statements of Jesus that tend in that direction, but those actual words were not found in the Gospels, and yet Paul knew it as part of the tradition. So he was concerned about the earthly life of Jesus. He, he was with the apostles and, uh, um, in the book of Galatians, and doubtlessly 
pick their brains with reference to the earthly life of Jesus. And you can't really separate the earthly life of Jesus unless you have a, a desire to say, well, the, 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 there's a history of Jesus that can't be accessed through the Gospels because the Gospels aren't true. That's what these people are basically saying. The Gospels aren't necessarily to be relied upon and trusted. Uh, those are the people that uh, had, remember that thing they had years ago, it was called the Jesus Seminar, and they took the words of Jesus apart and basically gave out uh, little colored papers, I think, that... Beads. What's that? Colored beads. Colored beads, you said? Beads, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the colored would determine the degree of reliability. Um, you know, if it was, it was pink... They agreed, like for the Lord's Prayer, they agreed that Jesus said, Our Father, and that's all they agreed upon. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they were basically looking to say that the scriptures weren't trustworthy. I think one of the colors they used was pink. I remember reading an article back, it was a Christianity Today, it was entitled, Giving Jesus the Pink Slip. <laughs> you know, ruling him out, you know, we don't have to listen to him. Because, anyway, it's completely wrong. Because, first of all, Paul's not saying that. When Paul says that um, we regard no one according to the flesh, he's not saying we don't regard anyone according to their earthly life. Oh, we have no interest in people. We have no interest in the lives that they live. We have no interest in their struggles. We have no interest in their in their families. We have no interest in... You know, of course he has an interest in all that. Paul's concern was for people. He was a very clearly people-oriented servant of Jesus, caring about the earthly life that people lived in this earth. He's saying we regard no one according to the flesh... Well, we just have some kind of a spiritual read upon people that has nothing to do with their fleshly, earthly existence. Now, when we read words like flesh in the scriptures, you have to think in terms of regarding people in accordance with the way ordinary people think about other people. In the way that a mind that's not been enlightened by the scriptures, that's not been enlightened by the realities of the gospel, would simply view people in accordance with simply earthly, earthly uh, terms. When, and just ignoring the whole reality of uh, the spiritual attainment that the gospel brings to us. He's saying we don't regard people in accordance with just human understandings. We refer to people and we regard people in accordance with the spiritual realities the gospel brings. That's the difference, that's the contrast. And with reference to Christ... We don't view him just in terms of how unenlightened human understandings would view this teacher from Galilee. I mean, then people said he, was, he cast out demons by Beelzebub. They made whatever they wanted of him just in terms of human understanding. Unenlightened by the Spirit of God. And Paul was in that camp once, Right? Well, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He viewed Christ in accordance with the flesh, human understanding. No spiritual awareness, no awareness of this great event that God had done intervening in human history in the incarnation of his son and the ascending of his spirit. It's only when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and actually heard that a voice from heaven, Who are you, Lord? He knew it was the voice of God. It could be nothing else. I am Jesus whom you have persecuted. And then Paul had to reorient his thinking about Christ entirely. 
He can't think now of Jesus in accordance to the flesh. Mere human understanding, mere insight, devoid of, apart from, the enlightenment of the Spirit or the enlightenment that the Gospel brings. That's the contrast. Because the love of Christ constrains us. We can't see people just as uh, people that live and die and have a few accomplishments in life and so you read your obituaries at the end of the day. We heard of the death of someone we knew. We had Thanksgiving with and um, Christmas with. And we could not regard her just in accordance with the flesh. We regarded her as an eternal soul made in the image and likeness of God. Made for hearing and receiving the gospel. And so we prayed for her. And we witnessed to her. And we endeavored to minister to her and serve her from a Christian perspective. Because we don't view people just in accordance with human understanding. Earthly human understanding devoid of the spirit, devoid of the reality of the gospel and God's intervention in history uh, in Christ and through the giving of the spirit. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not dealing with what Moltmann thought it was dealing with at all. So once you take that off the table, <laughs> you, know, you know you know the continuity between the Jesus of the gospels and the Jesus uh, of history. It's one and the same and not a different one. So... And, um, and, and Paul uh, affirms this and underscores this and advances the reality of it that we're not thinking just in human terms. We're not thinking just as people would think in a fallen world with the insight of our own brains and understanding guiding our way. Because then he says in the next words in verse 17, therefore, or behold, if anyone is in Christ... A new creation. I know our translations say he is a new creation. We supply those words. But it's a new creation. Paul declares a new creation has come. And that new creation has come in Christ. That new creation has come that brings us to see things in a wholly new, new, new way. We can't see things in the light just of the old creation. The flesh, and the way the flesh saw things, and the way human understanding sees things. We see things in a completely new way, because a new creation is entered in, in the person of Christ. And he says, old things, the old has passed away, behold, the new is come. And Paul's not just picking this stuff up out of the air. He's not picking this stuff out of his own thought and meditation as he mulled over the whole question of the gospel and its relationship to people at Corinth and his ministry. No, all this is Old Testament. He's speaking from the vantage point of the Old Testament. Anybody know what passages he's uh, drawn on, he's alluding to? If you said the book of Isaiah, you would not be wrong. <laughs> Particularly, uh, there's two major passages in the book of Isaiah that I think what Paul is doing is um, he's 
conflating. Remember those, those words? I remember one, one, one uh, Wednesday night at a prayer meeting, I, I threw the word conflation out on you when I think we were looking at uh, the book of Revelation. book of Revelation took uh, some, some verses from the book of Zechariah and then another book, I think it was one of the Psalms, and put it together. That's called conflation. You bring things from completely different places and you bring them together. Well, Paul conflated um, Isaiah. In two passages of Isaiah, uh, the first one we'll look at is chapter sixty-six or chapter sixty-five. Um, I think it was Saint Jerome who said that the book of Isaiah is a mini miniature Bible. Now, we might think that, uh, okay, well, look at Isaiah. How many chapters are there? 66 chapters. How many books are there in the Bible? 66 books in the Bible. So, But that's not the reason that uh, I think the book of Isaiah is a miniature Bible. Uh, maybe more to the point is the fact that the Bible ends in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation with two chapters about a new creation. And that's where Isaiah ends his book. Two chapters on the new creation. In verse 17 of chapter 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And remember what he said? The old things are passed away. All things become new. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and their people to be gladness. And it's an interesting thing. In the new creation, both in Isaiah and in Revelation, um, you don't get a, a tour of the whole of the new creation. Well, how did the new creation affect the Hudson Valley? <laughs> what did it make uh, the mountains and the plains and the of, of the American continent look like. You don't, you don't get an, an international tour. You get a tour of the city. You get a tour of Jerusalem. And God creates all things new. The center point is the place of his presence in the Old Testament, which was Jerusalem, was Mount Zion. Because it's God's presence going forth from that central place through, through, throughout the world. Uh, that's what Isaiah sees in chapter 2 of all the nations coming to Mount Zion, and Zion being elevated above all of the mountains. But he sees a new heavens and new earth. Um, all things pass away. The former things shall not be remembered. And, and then in uh, chapter 32, turn back to 32. There's also 66, as mentioned, of the new creation again. But in uh, chapter 32... Let me see if I have this right. Now this is the passage I'm going to look at this morning. This may not be the passage I'm looking at or need. Oh. No, no, it's not 45. I'm looking for something earlier on where the language of um, all things become new is found. And um, in the message this morning, I have Isaiah 32 as the place I wanted to turn. Maybe it's 34. Let's turn to 34. Chapter 
No, I'm not finding it even here. I'm sorry? No, 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 no. It's it's in the 30s. It's definitely in the 30s. But um, I'll, I'll give it to you next week. Um, I apologize for that. It just isn't here. But there is another passage that speaks of new creation, where even that language of all things becoming new is used by Isaiah. And uh, no, don't, don't don't go looking for it because it's not. <laughs> um, I'll have to uh, have to find it. Let's get back to chapter five of Second Corinthians. Um, but again, Paul's taking that language of a new creation that in one sense is future to us. In one sense, that new creation does not descend out of heaven from God until the final days. But it comes again into history through the resurrection of Christ. Christ has brought in a new creation. He's brought in the new age. He's brought in the age of the kingdom. One of the things about the new creation that you see in Isaiah 65 and 66 is the fact that it is the reign of the king. That the king reigns over the nations. And it's the king who has come uh, to reign over the nations through his death and resurrection and through the sending forth of the gospel. And so Paul sees a new creation having come about and it's in Christ. If any man be in Christ... New creation is not to be found in, the, in, in our efforts. It's not to be found in human achievement. It's not to be found in um, the United Nations. It's not to be found in all the things that people would hope for as uh, bringing in a better world. Everybody wants a better world, right? Um, all the athletes and they say, what do you want to do in your future? Well, I'd like to make the world a better place. Everybody wants to make the world a better place. Well, actually, God has done something to make the world a better place. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus that the world is made a better place. But not just a better place. It's made a new creation. All the old things of the old creation are destroyed. Human principality, human um, empire. It's all put away. Now, ultimately, it's not until the final day that that's complete. But the point of it all is it's begun in Christ. It's begun in his work, in his coming, in his death, in his resurrection. And we're part of that new creation. We're part of that new order of things. We're part of that new um, thing that God's doing in the world, in Christ, when we are in him. Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul sees all these ideas as coming together. The substitutionary death of Christ. He died for all. Our incorporation into him. Um, we died in him. The resurrection. That we might not live for ourselves. But for him who died for our sake and rose again. The fact that in this death and resurrection, we see things in a new way. We see things no longer in accordance with just human standards and human ideas. We see things in accordance with new creation realities, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We see things in the light of the coming in, in Christ, of a new creation. And it's in Christ we see that all of this is from God. All of these blessings are from God found in Christ and through, through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what makes us to be a part of this new creation. We've been reconciled. 
We've been turned from enemies to friends. From those who stand far off to those who draw near. There was this warfare that existed in our rebellion against God. But now this work of Christ has come to reconcile us, to bring us back to God. And God in turn, having reconciled us to himself, gives us to a ministry of reconciliation. That's what we've been given. Now this evening we're going to look a bit in the book of Isaiah and how all these ideas are really found in the book of Isaiah. My problem this morning is I don't have all the passages in front of me and I'm just having a problem recalling exactly where they are. This evening they will be before me, I will know them, we will go look at all those passages. But these are the things that are all anticipated in terms of what God would do uh, when he sent the Messiah. Is that there would be this achievement of this work of reconciliation and there would be the messengers who would go forth as witnesses of that ministry of reconciliation to the nations. And Paul sees himself as part of that. That's what his ministry is. His ministry is a ministry of the proclamation of the message of reconciliation. And that reconciliation has to do with the death of Christ. It has to do with his achievement of reconciliation between God and man. That the enemies become friends. But it doesn't only go there. It moves into the way in which in Ephesians 2 he speaks of how Again, through the same death of Jesus, that we who were once at enmity, at at, at odds with one another, at at, at enmity, have now been made one in Christ Jesus. And he speaks of Jew and Gentile, separated by that middle wall of partition that consisted in commandments and ordinances, where Jews and Gentiles have nothing to do with one another. Um, the uncircumcised dogs, the, the circumcised uh, uh, people that are just the, the, the object of the hatred of the world. And now God brings them into one body, unites them through the death of his son and has given the ministry of reconciliation. And, and Paul uses the language in Ephesians that he came and he preached peace. Jesus is preaching peace to Jew and Gentile through the labors of the apostles. So, in a real sense, the apostolic ministry is seen by Paul as an extension of the work of Christ. It's not a different thing. It's an ongoing of the work of Christ. Now, in one sense, the work of Christ is complete and full in what it achieved. But in terms of its promulgation and its the witness born to it, to the ends of the earth, though well, that's something God has called his apostles to do. That's something that's a continuation of that work. Over in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, it is an interesting thing to see how Paul, in Acts, is quoting a passage from Isaiah that we would think, that no, that's Jesus who's in view there. And, and Paul seems to think, no, no, um, that's us. That's us. Here in um, Acts chapter 13, the, the passage is verse 49. And the quotation is from Isaiah 49, where God says to his servant, it's too small a thing that you should restore the people of Israel or Jacob. I will make you to be a light for the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And you you read that in Isaiah 49, you're thinking, well, that's the servant. That's the servant that was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That's a servant that went to the cross and died for our sins in accordance with chapter 53. 
Well, yes, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is seen here. Well, we read that uh, Paul and Barnabas in verse 46 spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be first spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, there were some Jews who came to believe, but God said to the servant, It's, it's not enough <laughs> that you should be my restorer of, of, of Israel to me. No, I'll make you my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Paul says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, And he quotes Isaiah 49. Isn't that strange? Of course, Isaiah 49. I've made you a light for the Gentiles. You, Paul? That's Jesus. Yeah, Paul would say, yeah, you're right. It is Jesus. But who's bringing the word of Jesus to the nations? Paul. So the Lord commanded us, saying, I've made you light for the nations. We're light to the nations. Remember Jesus said, I'm the light of the world in John 8, but then in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. He's light, but we're light too. Jesus is the light to the nations, but Paul is a light to the nations as well. I've made you a light to the nations, or to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, that's the work of the spread of the message. That's the work of the messengers going out with the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Or in the early chapters of the 40s, where he says, you are my witnesses. You know, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it's, God says, you'll be my witnesses. So there are preachers sent out. There are teachers that go forth. There are those bearing witness of the, of the message, of the message of what God has done in, um, in the servant. And so they become part of this new creation. And they become part of this work of reconciliation. Of receiving that reconciliation. Then in turn becoming messengers of reconciliation. So Paul could say, all this is from God, who through Christ redeemed us to himself. I'm sorry, reconciled us to himself. We've been reconciled. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled so we might be reconcilers. We've been brought to the knowledge of Christ that we might bring others to the knowledge of Christ. That is, in Christ, not in us, but in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus did the act of reconciliation, but we're given the message of reconciliation. In the picture of the Old Testament prophets, it's all all seen as uh, one thing God's doing to bring in what? A new creation. It's ultimately, as Isaiah sees it, the whole end is a new creation. How is the new creation achieved? Well, it's through agents that the new creation is received. And, of course... The servant is one of those agents, or the principal agent. And uh, we are agents too, or the, the apostles were agents, and those that preach the gospel are agents of bringing in that new creation. And we bring in that new creation by the proclamation of the message 
of the, what, what God did in reconciling the world to himself. God did the reconciliation, but we preach the message of reconciliation. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We go forth into the world as his ambassadors, not making up our own message, but proclaiming the message he's given to us. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Isn't that an interesting thing? That Paul would say that to the church at Corinth. Weren't they already reconciled to God? Oh yeah, they were. But you know, one of the problems were they weren't quite reconciled to each other. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Kephas. Um, think of um, the false teachers that were opposing Paul there. There was a lot of stuff going on where divisions were mounting. And this reconciliation is all part of a new creation. It's not just part of well, fixing us up so we can go to heaven when we die. It's part of bringing in a new order, a new way of viewing things. Not seeing the world in accordance with the flesh, but seeing the world in a wholly new way, in a wholly different way. And the gospel has given us eyes to see things in a wholly new way. It's not just me and the Lord and forget the rest of the world. But it's me and the Lord and what am I supposed to be doing now with reference to the church? With reference to this body of believers at Corinth that were supposed to be agents of reconciliation to the world as Paul was an agent of reconciliation to the world. And But what do you see? When you go and you visit the church at Corinth, what do you see? Do you see a reconciled people? Do you see, oh, look at this, a ministry of reconciliation. This group over here won't have anything to do with that group over there. And that group over there won't have anything to do with that group over there. And you look at that and you say, where is reconciliation in that? We're just not seeing it. And so Paul says, this message of reconciliation I've been given, I'm going to start with this church here. Although they've heard the message, they've not quite been reconciled to God in the way that that reconciliation is visible. That reconciliation is simply not being seen. And if this new creation has come where all things are passed away, but all things become new, it should be something that's visible. Now it's not fully complete until Jesus comes again, but shouldn't we see something of the power of a new creation? And again, not just evident in individual human lives. This whole understanding of a new creation is not just... Are you walking yourself as you ought to so that you can pacify your own mind and conscience that you're a Christian? As important as that concern might be to us as individuals, it's of greater concern. How am I connected to the people of God in a way that's showing that the fact of reconciliation has been achieved through Christ? A ministry of reconciliation is evident through the proclamation of the gospel. And we're seeing the power of a new crea- of, of reconciliation that's tip- that typifies or the marks of a new creation. Paul wasn't seeing it. And the question is, do we see it in the church today? We say we're the church, we say we have a message of reconciliation for the world, and we just don't seem to get on with one another, or we don't seem to get on with very many groups of Christians. We seem to just be at war constantly, constant conflict, constant bitterness, constant uh, finding new things of dividing with one another. 
And, and, and Paul says, no, no, this message is a reconciling message. Those that preach the gospel message are preaching a, a message of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and he's entrusted to us with a message not of reconciliation, a message of reconciliation. I know, I know there's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And that's a message, that's a passage we need to take to heart and we need to understand just in terms of the fact that there is a line of division between faith and non-faith. Between Christ and not, not Christ. And the gospel does come to make divisions. But the gospel's line of division is, generally speaking, not to be within the church. It's not to be, well, how, how can we find areas of division? We're not being faithful to the Lord if we just allow everything and everything to go on because Jesus has come not to bring peace, but he's come to bring a sword. And we got one verse that says that. And I can show you 50 verses that speak of peace. 50 verses to say he's the prince of peace 50 verses to speak of the peaceable kingdom in the book of Isaiah uh, verses in the, 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 the epistles that speak of um, the maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace again and again and again by God's word talking to us about peace and somehow we, we seize upon the one passage that says I came not to bring peace I came to bring a sword lift it fully out of that context in which it's given and make that normative that's not normative, folks. That's not normative at all. That's exceptional. The normative is the, is the fact of reconciliation in Christ, God reconciling the world to himself, and the ministry of reconciliation that we, we are given. That the major focus of what we should be seeing among the people of God is a people striving to be reconciled, striving to put away our differences, striving to say, well, there's nothing more important than your political opinions. There's something more important than the kind of music that we sing. There's kind of something more important than um, the, the ways we quibble over matters of spiritual gifts or, or baptism or something else. And not that any of that's unimportant. That all has its place of importance. This is not the principal place of importance. And unfortunately, that's where, that's where we place it. And I just, I just think it's wrong. I just think, you know, people ought to be able to come into a congregation of God's people and I've gone past my time and see a new creation at work see the reality of it well let's pray together Father we're thankful we can consider these things we pray we would think upon them and you would give us understanding in them for Jesus sake we pray Amen Twenty-eight. <laughs> Twenty-seven or twenty-eight. One in the thirties is in the twenties. It wasn't what I was looking for, Tim. Really. It wasn't what I was looking for. Um, yes. But it's not what I was thinking of.
Oh, oh, there that works. Yeah. It's a I'll go to my notes. My eyes not coming upon it. A guy named Cowboy. In fact, hit her. I don't know if it is it as far as the push for electric, but it's hard to believe that it's not because. Okay. It's still it's yes. It was funny when you just said that at the end. I'm like, oh, the group at the Salvation Army that's being commissioned today, guess what they're called? The Reconcilers. Messengers of Reconciliation. There when you, you said go. that, I was like, that is so funny. <laughs> 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 